Galatians chapter 3. Following last Sunday's study, um, the Lord was just speaking to me. And I hope you know that that's kind of how this works. Um, that this is not a, 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 a meal that's, that's just prepared for you. That Galatians is not just a word of God to you, but it's, it's a word of God to me as well. And that, that God has been doing so much in my heart through this series. I hope uh, a fraction of that's been happening in your life as well. And so just coming off of last Sunday's service and just really uh, stirred with that, with that idea that I'm dead. I'm dead. And it's Jesus alive in me and working through me. And if it's a good thing that comes out of my life, it's him and him alone. And I can take no credit for it. No pride in that. Or on the flip side to it, if it's a bad thing that comes from my life, it's not Jesus, it's not Grace's fault, it's me. It's the fact that this dead man's trying to grab hold of the reins. And just kind of in that thought process, um, I, I, I was stirred to this, this thought. I had to, I spent way more time than I should have working on this, but just I had a creative thing within my own heart. So I just want to start this morning by sharing a little poem. I knew a man consumed with self and rebellion against his God. A prideful man felt justified, was right in all he did. I knew this man believed the lie, that he was all he needs. For when he failed, this stubborn man grew harder in his belief. I know this man, condemned by sin, was unable to break free. So determined in his ways was he self-righteous, he was me. I know a man in whom God dwells, whose self was crucified. A sinful man found justified, made right in Jesus Christ. I know this man's been made alive. His life's been sanctified. The Holy Ghost, not self, he boasts through faith in Jesus Christ. I knew a man condemned by sin, but now he's been set free. To die with Christ and live in him by grace, this man's now me. As we transition from Galatians chapter 2 to Galatians chapter 3, it's important to remind ourselves of the context. Chapter 3, you might say, follows a bit of a history lesson provided by Paul to this Galatian group of believers, this collection of churches in an area known as Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul recounts the events of the Jerusalem council. And he does this to make it known to the Galatians that he was not only familiar with this group of false teachers who had come to Galatia peddling this distorted gospel, but he brings up this council to nail home the reality, the fact, the indisputable evidence that the issue they were dealing with had already been settled. This had already been dealt with. Paul is clear that back in Acts chapter 15, the apostles, meeting concerning this very issue, legalism and grace, specifically Peter, James, and John, pillars of the church, they had not only rejected this heresy, this grace and, grace but, or grace so distortion, not only had they rejected the heresy and the men peddling it, but they had agreed with the essence of what Paul had been preaching. That we're saved, justified, and perfected, sanctified through one mechanism and one mechanism alone. That is faith, that it is grace, and grace, period. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the verses to follow, Paul recounts his confronting of Peter in Antioch. And he does this to illustrate that though the matter of grace period had been settled years before in this Jerusalem council, that just a few weeks afterwards, when Peter came to Antioch, his descent into legalism, his slide down this slippery slope, illustrated how easy it is for any believer to fall prey to a legalistic mindset. Whether it be fear of the abuse of grace 
to sin, or whether it be a false sense of moral superiority. Slipping into legalism is so easy. It's why we should all be on guard. Anytime that we feel the Pharisee in us stirring, as Gary so eloquently said, we need to go to the book of Galatians because it says, no, stop, don't go down that road. In a sense, the story, this recounting of this particular event, it explains why the issue had now resurfaced in Galatia. And then in verses 15 through 21, the verses we looked at last Sunday, Paul recounts a sermon that he gave in Antioch following his rebuke of Peter's legalism. And it's this sermon that focused on explaining theologically, doctrinally, the origins of our justification or how we become justified before God. Doing so, Paul explains how absolutely silly it is to trust the law to perfect a person when the law couldn't even save a person. It was powerless. The law was diagnostic. It told you how much of a sinner you were, how far you had fallen short of God's standard. But the law, as a diagnostic measure, couldn't provide the solution. It told you how bad you were, but it provided no remedy for it. The law, as we'll look at uh, January 3rd, was to prepare us for Jesus, to reveal our need for a Savior. The reality is that you can never take grace far enough for a life experiencing God's grace is fundamentally inconsistent with sin. I'm not saved by what I do. I'm saved by what Jesus did. But what Jesus did does a work in my heart. It transforms me from the inside out. And where the law demanded I obey God, grace, this favor, it motivates me to want to obey God. Now, that doesn't mean I'm always good at it. But a heart change, a transformation has occurred, as St. Augustine once wrote, for grace is not given because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. It's the change of our motivations. Now, in dealing with the issue of legalism, Paul has been hammering home one important truth, and we cannot remind ourselves enough of this truth. Faith in the power of God's grace as demonstrated through Jesus' death on the cross. Not works, not law, not what we eat or what we don't eat, but God's grace is the only mechanism by which a person is justified. He has spent two chapters hammering home this central point. In His grace... In God's unmerited favor, Jesus atoned for your sin. He paid a price that you could not pay. So that now when you place your faith in that work, you'll be found righteous and you'll be found justified before your heavenly Father. And while many of us, and if you've been with us, I hope this would include you, understand this truth on a conceptual level. Okay, Zach, I'm with you. I got it here. I'm not the smartest, uh, smartest guy in the room, but I, I understand this central concept. Grace, not works. Faith, not law. I'm there. I get it. Intellectually, I understand it. But I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of still struggling with the practicalities of how this works in my life. I get it as a concept, but in regards to like the practical manifestations of how this helps me, I don't know. Now, understand the importance of this. Understanding the practicalities of how grace justifies a person before God is paramount if you're then to understand where Paul's going to be going with this. The practicalities of how grace transforms a person's life from a sinner to someone that's godly. Sadly, and I think this lends a lot of confusion that's been expressed by many of you, Christians have developed this notion that salvation is a work that Jesus did apart from my involvement, which is totally true, and that the only role we play is acceptance by faith. Not actually true. 
And I'm going to explain this. I'm going to expound on that because on the surface, that seems to be a factual statement, but it's actually not. Now, most mainstream views of salvation end up being relegated to something like this. There was a moment in time that I came to the end of my rope, the end of myself, and I came forward. And I prayed a prayer, the prayer of salvation. I accepted the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that he atoned for my sin, so that I could receive his imparted righteousness and declare justified before God. And let's just hope you actually understand the words involved in that statement, but that's kind of a mainstream presentation. I prayed a prayer. I accepted Jesus' work on my behalf. I'm cool with God. And though that sounds nice, it's no wonder people then have a hard time determining what follows that prayer. Like, since salvation is seen as something I have, something given by God, something received by me, most now wonder this. Okay, I prayed the prayer. God gave it. I received it. Now what do I do? Like, what's next? Like, what follows the prayer? Which that mindset so quickly lends to a grace and, and grace but distortion. Okay, God gave me his salvation. I've received it. Now what do I do? And then it's like, well, you do these things, grace and fill in the blank, or you, you refrain from doing these things. You're saved, so now here's a list of things to do. And yet on the flip side, if salvation is seen as nothing more than let's just kind of call it a receipt that gives a person a set of free tickets, passes, and vouchers they receive by faith, gets them to heaven, makes them cool with God, then it's only logical that this grace so I can do anything I want distortion emerges. You see how the three distortions are predicated upon our perspective of what salvation really is. Here's how the mindset develops. Jesus' death on the cross provides me the atonement receipt. The payment for my sin. The work Jesus did on the cross, I get this receipt, which is huge. Why? Because I could never pay the debt. I could never satisfy what was demanded. I couldn't do it. Jesus did it. He atoned for me and then gave me a written receipt. And I'm like, sweet. And now that I have this atonement receipt, I know that I can take that baby to the pearly gates. I can give it to St. Pete. I can exchange it for my forgiveness ticket, which gives me open access to God's throne. And since I'm now in the theme park of heaven, it's only logical that I take this forgiveness ticket to now procure my justification pass which allows me into the righteousness club of heaven, right? Because I'm right, baby. Which, once I've gained entrance, allows me to have the all-access, no-condemnation name tag. So I can run around and do whatever I want because, you know, I'm in the club. I've been justified, forgiven, my sins atoned for, once saved, always saved. Please understand there's a fundamental problem with this perspective, with all three gospel distortions. Every aspect of your salvation, friend, your atonement, forgiveness, being justified, made righteous, all of these things occur via a relational association and is not a golden ticket. I pray a prayer, I run out, I got the golden ticket, I'm going to Willy Wonka's factory. No, that's not what salvation is. It's a relational association. You see, salvation, scripturally speaking, it demands an intertwining, a fusing together of your life and Jesus' life by faith. Salvation is not something I have or something I possess, like a ticket. Rather, salvation is something I experience. Like, let me give you two quick examples of this, scripturally. Why does God accept Jesus' atonement 
for your sin? The answer, because you died with Jesus on the cross. Like at the end of of Galatians 2, Paul made this crystal clear. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, which is important. For while you would have needed to have died an eternal death to atone for sin, because Jesus was sinless and righteous, his one-time death could be a permanent payment to satisfy your debt. In Romans 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul expounding on this very reality. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So Jesus, God accepts Jesus' atonement for your sin because you died with Jesus, okay? Secondly, how can God then declare you righteous and justified? Because that doesn't necessarily fully follow atonement. I can have my sin atoned for, but that doesn't mean I'm imparted his righteousness and his, and his justification, like his position. But the answer is this. Because you died with Christ, you're now dead and Christ lives in you. This is what the Bible teaches since you were resurrected to life in Jesus's resurrection, when God looks at you, he no longer sees you. Why? You're dead. You died. But what does God see? He instead sees Jesus and therefore his righteousness. When God evaluates my life and your life, He sees us, he sees me, just as if I'd never sinned. For one reason and one reason alone. It's not that I I never sinned. It's that the man who sinned is dead, and that's not me. The reason God, when he sees me, sees me righteous and just as if I'd never sinned is because when he sees me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus, who is sinless and has never sinned. That's how God can see you, just as if you'd never sinned, because he sees Jesus who never sinned. Paul continues in Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, for God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. How? In Jesus. The essential reality of salvation in every single process involved in making that happen demands a relational association with Jesus which explains why scripture over and over and over and over again uses a set of phrases to describe our life in Christ, the life of the Christian. We see it all the time. In him, in Christ Jesus, with Jesus, with him, with Christ. A great example of this is Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and the golden ticket given. No, the gift of God is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would encourage you to just underline life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how we have it. It's not given in the sense that it's something I possess, but something I abide in. I walk in, I live in. Jesus says, he who abides in me, right? He uses that phrase, being grafted in. Salvation is not a voucher program provided by Jesus that you receive in faith, but is instead brought forth through a relational association initiated by Jesus that you continue in by faith. Your salvation, your atonement, forgiveness, justification, declared righteousness only occurs if you are found living in Jesus Christ. Now, let me attempt to illustrate this idea. Um, Full disclosure, no aspect of this illustration is true. 
It's just an illustration. So up front, things are about to get kind of crazy. None of it's true. This never happened at any point ever. We're all on the same page? Okay, great. Let's say that I, a couple weekends ago, happened to roll with some of my boys to the hottest club in Atlanta. And we partied, I mean, all night. I mean, all night. The next week, I tried to go back to that club. But there was one problem. Week one did not end so well. We were partying. I got hammered, tried to fight a security guard, threw up all over the DJ table. Doesn't make for a good night. There is no chance moving forward, no chance in H-E double hockey sticks, that's a Christian way of saying hell, that I'm getting in. They're not gonna let me into the club. It's done, it's over. I ruined it. Unless, let's say a stretch limo pulls up to the front door of the club. And I get out with my close pal, Christopher Bridges, a.k.a. Ludacris, who happens to own the club. Now, as you can imagine, since I'm with Luda, not only am, am I able to avoid the line and given the red carpet, but the security, who would never have let me in because of my previous transgressions, opens the doors wide. They don't ask me any questions. They don't even take my name. Not only that, they escort me specifically to the VIP. Like, I don't have to party with all the noobs. Like, I'm with Luda. So I'm in the VIP. And then I'm given this, like, unlimited tab. Like, I ain't got to worry about paying bills. Like, Luda's throwing bills all over the place. You see, since I'm rolling with Ludacris, not only are my past transgressions immediately forgiven and my slate wiped clean, but his reputation and his privilege are afforded to me as well, right? If I'm found to be with Luda, then everything takes care of itself. I mean, keep in mind, this unmerited favor that I'm enjoying, it has nothing to do with who I am, does it? Nor does it have anything to do with something I did to earn it. In fact, I don't deserve it at all. Instead, the favor I'm enjoying has everything to do with who I have a relational association with, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. And this is what many people don't understand about salvation. Having Uber drop me off by the front door of the club, approaching security, telling them they have to let me in because I'm with Ludacris, when everyone looks around and Ludacris isn't there, that's not going to gain me access, is it? Like, I can say I'm with him, but if I'm not with him, it doesn't really matter. Furthermore, explaining that Ludacris and I are tight because, you know, I hang out with a lot of people who know him. I give money and, and am a member of the fan club, you know, Luda Nation. Faithfully, I attend all of his concerts. I mean, every Sunday's concert and Wednesday night concert, I'm there. As a matter of fact, I also know all of the words to Ludiverse, classic album. I know all the words to the songs. I could sing them. I know people who know them. I give money to the fan club. I go to all the concerts I can. I mean, I'm there, but all that stuff's pointless, right? When I'm standing there trying to gain access. Why? Because not one of those things is actually evidence of me having a personal relationship with Ludacris. I can even demand security, call Ludacris, call him, call him. He knows me. He'll let me in. Call him. When he answers that phone, you know what he's going to say? Depart, because I don't even know the man. Catch the play on words here? Follow with me? This is why the gospel of grace, period, is nothing more than the position that all you need for atonement to be forgiven, to be justified, to be declared righteous with God is an active relationship with Jesus. That's all that's required. 
Because salvation is not something you have, but instead someone you know. The very thought of what do I do now reveals this fundamental misunderstanding of salvation. Sure, salvation is something I've been given by Jesus that must be received in faith. But what have I actually been given? Like, what does salvation give me? The answer? A savior, by definition. I'm saved through God's grace and that I'm given a relationship with Jesus that, that atones for me, that saves me, that justifies me, that makes me righteous, that gives me full access. That relationship, me with Jesus, it takes care of all of it. It's something I can enjoy. It's something I get to continue in. What do I do now that I've said a prayer is replaced with a savior? I get to now know. And it's with this in mind that we wrap up the longest intro in history (laughs) by focusing on the fact that Paul will segue to another point tied in with all of this. Galatians 3 verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Oh, foolish Galatians. Eugene Peterson's commentary called The Message, it presents this as you crazy Galatians. The Amplified Bible kind of expounds on it. I like it. It translates this as, Oh, you foolish and thoughtless and superficial Galatians. This Greek word, foolish, it's more expansive and colorful than our English word. It means to not understand, to be unwise. Now, now note, it wasn't that these Galatians didn't know the truth. The problem was that they were failing to carry the things they knew to be true about salvation, about Jesus, about grace, to their logical conclusions. It was the fact that they weren't relying on doctrinal truth to determine how they practically lived. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Not that you don't know it, but that you're not obeying it. You're not living it. This word bewitched, it means to charm or to cast a spell over. Paul's contention was that these Galatians, it wasn't that they didn't know the gospel, but rather the reality that they were allowing people willfully to lead them away from it. Now, how had they come to know the truth? Paul affirms that when he had come to Galatia, during his first two missionary journeys, he, quote, clearly portrayed through his teaching the importance of Jesus Christ crucified. Like this phrase, clearly portrayed. It, 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 it means to be written publicly. It, it's as though in our common vernacular, Paul would say, I billboarded this, man. Like I came and I spoke about nothing but Jesus and Jesus crucified. It was the most important thing. I I hammered it down. I reiterated it over and over and over again. I know you know it. I five, boom, there were signs billboarded up there everywhere you went, Jesus crucified, grace period. You know it, but you're not abiding by it. You're not living in it. So verse two, this only I want to learn from you. (laughs) And there's so much sarcasm dripping from that. Why don't you educate me a little, since you, since you know it all? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, in line with everything he's been discussing in the previous two chapters, Paul is now wanting his audience to admit something very important, what the mechanism of their salvation had been. How had they received the Spirit? How would you gotten saved? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law? Or was it the hearing of faith? It's as though Paul is asking them, in light of everything he's communicated thus far, what happened when you were first saved? When you first came to the Lord? When you first uh, laid down yourself? When you came to the cross? When you let go? Like, did, did you clean up your life first? You know? Like, did you get everything in order so you could come to Jesus? And Jesus is like, oh, squeaky clean, I gotcha. 
Like, was it works to the law? Was it cleaning things up? Or were you at like your worst? And you came to Jesus, and he's like, boom, unmerited favor. That's what I like. You're at your worst. I came to fix that. Perfect. Was it works or was it faith? Was it earning or was it freely given? Was it by hearing and faith that you would receive the Spirit? His point, this rhetorical question, is that it's only logical then if the beginnings of our relationship with Jesus was purely supernatural, right? That our continuance in that relationship should also be supernatural. If it began in faith, are you going to think it continues in the law? If it begins as a miracle of God, shouldn't it be logical to conclude it continues as a miracle of God? Are you so foolish, verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, who supplies the Spirit to you, and works miracles among you, does he do it, perform these miracles in our lives by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul's focus now transitions away from our salvation. And he focuses his attention on what comes next after our salvation. He says it, having begun in the Spirit. So you've begun in the Spirit. That's happened. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been made alive. You've been regenerated. There's been new birth. That's happened. That's taken place. You've given your life to Jesus. It's no longer you who live. You've been crucified. He's living in you. That's happened. So now that that's happened, are you being made perfect by the flesh? Like he takes it one step further. If Jesus supplied the spirit who works miracles, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Like his argument If a relationship with Jesus founded upon faith in his grace brought forth by his death on the cross is the only mechanism by which I'm saved. This relational association with Jesus. Isn't it then logical that a relationship with Jesus is then the only mechanism by which I can live a godly life? That anything miraculous happening isn't me but him? A work of him, not me? It's what Paul means in this phrase, being made perfect. In doctrinal terms, Paul is referring to a process we call sanctification, or literally, the setting apart. Practically, sanctification is the process by which our lives become more in tune with and reflective of God's character. Basically, sanctification is the process following salvation where a sinner becomes godly. Like where there's growth in our lives, where where some of our former tendencies change. Like in a very simplified sense, sanctification is the process by which you become more like Jesus. And once again, the topic at hand centers upon the mechanism by which this happens. Like Paul's contention is that the practicalities of how grace justifies a person, it's got nothing to do with you, right? Everything to do with him and a relational association you now have with a savior. That sets a precedent by which grace then transforms a person's life from sin into godliness. Like keep in mind, A sanctified life cannot be manufactured. Like, how good were you at saving yourself? You're very bad at it. That's why you needed a savior. Like, you couldn't do it. In the same sense, you also can't make yourself a better person. Like, you can try really hard to do that, and you're going to fail miserably. Like, you're not going to make yourself a better person. Like, sanctification, like justification, is nothing more than a natural byproduct of my relationship with Jesus initiated and fostered through his grace. Like, I can't manufacture it. I can't earn it. I can't develop 
a sanctified life any more than I could develop on my own a justified life. That's why Paul contends, right, in Galatians 2.21, that I do not set aside grace of God. I don't set it aside. For if righteousness, and note he says righteousness, not just justification, but sanctification, if it came through the law, Christ died in vain. Honestly, and let me explain this in the most simplified way I can. Like your spiritual development is not that complicated. Like your salvation isn't that complicated, is it, ultimately? I can't do it. Jesus did it. I'm going to roll with him. Theology 101. It's not that complicated. It's that simple. My death and his, his life and me. Justification. Sanctification, it's not that complicated either. It's not that complicated. If you want your life to become more like Jesus, who is, by the way, the type of what human godliness looks like, God became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want your life to become more like Christ, you need to do nothing more than what you did for salvation, which is what? Hang out with Jesus. Have a relational association with Jesus. Like, and please note, this is where so many people get it all terribly wrong. The key to a sanctified life is not acting like Jesus. I, I, let me just repeat that. The key to a sanctified life is not acting like Jesus. It's a fundamental flaw of legalism. If you're trying to be like Jesus, even if you're sincere in it, you're going to fail miserably and consistently. Why? Because your flesh is powerless to live a godly life. You can't do it. You cannot please God. You never were able to. You'll never be able to. Now keep in mind this simple fact. Behavioral and physical modification in the attempts of assuming a new internal constitution is never successful. Like at best, this approach is either hypocritical or it's superficial, like you're pretending to be something you're not, or at worst, it's unnatural and therefore a contorted, warped version of the original. Think about it like this. While Bruce Jenner believes he's a woman, his internal constitution actually says he's a man. Though he's genuinely suffering from a very real condition called gender dysphoria. Look it up. Instead of dealing with the underlying issues, he's gone to great lengths to do what? To change who he is by changing his physical appearance. Physical behavioral modification to change an internal constitution. We call it works. Like he's gone to great lengths to act and to look like a woman. He's grown out his hair. He's taken hormonal treatments. He's had plastic surgery to give himself breasts to create a more feminine uh, facial structure. He's changed his legal name, his legal gender. He's even begun dressing like a woman. And yet, nothing about Caitlyn Jenner is natural or normal. Acting like a woman does not change the fact he's still a man with a Y chromosome. Like he, he can't change that. Like on a side note, my heart grieves for Caitlyn Jenner. And I'll use that name because she wants to go by that whatever. But my heart is grieved for the entire situation. Because instead of helping that individual address the real psychological problems he's been tormented with for years, our culture has instead celebrated an approach to a psychosis that's both counterintuitive, unscientific, and in the end completely destructive to the individual for no amount of physical modification can fix a mental malady. Like, because this is a hot-button topic, I have included at the bottom of C316.tv this morning's sermon an article written by a gentleman named Walt Heyer who had a sex operation, a sex change, lived as a woman for eight years, 
reversed it all because it didn't solve his problems. And he wrote an article concerning this particular topic that is fascinating and, and, and demands our culture wake up and read. Because he's writing about it from a personal standpoint and his perspective is telling. And yet here's my point in wading into the Bruce Caitlyn Jenner controversy. Christians who focus on acting like Jesus in the attempts of changing their internal constitution so that they become Christ-like, end up projecting the same type of awkward, unnatural persona to the world that Caitlyn Jenner does. As a matter of fact, Christians who take this approach are weird. They're bizarre. You look at them and you're like, something's off. It ain't right. You see, the legalistic approach to sanctification by works or demanding what I do or don't do to be like Jesus, it never works. In actuality, and follow me here, in seeking to become like Christ by acting like Christ, it's why so many Christians end up presenting a contorted version of what Christ is actually like. Like sadly, Jesus ends up being most often misrepresented by the people trying their best to represent him, to be like him. Like understand, once again, real behavioral modification can only take place in your life. You're only going to be able to change. Your life change when a natural change first occurs within your constitution. This is why in order to be godly, you must first undergo a genuine internal transformation of who you fundamentally are. We call it regeneration, rebirth. Jesus called it to be born again. It's when Jesus indwells your life through his Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, verses 2 through 8, we're told of a, a story of a man a religious man, a seeking man named Nicodemus, who came to Jesus concerned with this very topic of, of how do we become moral? How can I be righteous? How can I do good things? How can I live the right way? This is how Jesus responded. Let me read it for you. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then just a few verses later, Jesus explains how we're born again. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's speaking of his crucifixion. That whoever believes in him and that work should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world, how? Through him might be saved. Like understand, Jesus is saying New birth occurs at the moment of conversion. Like the moment that you believe, accept, and place your faith in Christ, that you enter into this relational association with him, the moment your life is merged with his, when you accept your death occurred with his, is the moment you experience a new life initiated by him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul said this, If anyone is in Christ, relational association, what is he? He is a new creation. He's speaking of a new constitution. Where you're dead and Christ is alive in you through his Holy Spirit, then he says this, Because of that, old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, once again, once a person's internal constitution has changed because their heart has changed, 
because they've been born again by being filled with the Holy Spirit. This behavioral modification whereby we grow to become more like Christ, more like Jesus, sanctification, it happens not in some weird, twisted, contorted, made-up way, like plastic surgery. No, I become like Christ in the sense that I'm dead, he's in me, and he begins to work himself out both naturally and effortlessly. Jesus would call it like fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. You ever walk by a vineyard and you see a grape just striving so hard to be a grape? I just want to be the biggest grape I know. Like it just hangs there, right? Just hangs out. Sucks off the vine and becomes fruit. Grapes. That's why Jesus says, abide in me. As in abiding in a vine. Just hang out. Hang around. Spend time with Jesus. Now this phrase, Christ-likeness. You've heard it, right? Christ-likeness. I think it's misleading. Because it seems to infer really what the outlaw church is not about at all. And that's that somehow this process is whereby I grow to become like Jesus. And yet, thinking logically, right? What's the problem with that? How do I grow to become like Jesus when I am dead? Like, how's that possible? The answer, it isn't. You don't become like Jesus. That's not what Christ-likeness is. Instead of seeking to act like Christ, sanctification occurs when I choose to remain dead so that Christ can act through me. Christ-likeness is when I'm engaging you and there's so little of you and so much of Jesus. It's when I come in contact with you that I come in contact with Jesus, not you. And that becomes very obvious. There's an obvious difference between when I'm engaging you or Jesus. And that's what Christ-likeness is. You see the reality, me, myself, I, the unholy trinity, it has no role in the process. None of my works, none of my efforts, none of my energies can do this. Now, some of you came this morning and you're sitting there and you're thinking, Zach, who cares? This whole grace thing, that's, that's, that's great. But like, you know, I got some serious problems that I'm, that I'm working through. Like, there's some serious issues. Like, I could use some practical help solving. Like, my marriage is falling apart. My children are out of control. My job is not only frustrating, but I find it consistently unfulfilling. Zach, great, you're talking about grace, but, like, I'm dealing with addiction, man. I'm stuck in this sin that I can't kick, I can't get out of. Like, how about instead of like this grace thing, how about giving me some real, practical, tangible remedies to my issues? Friend, I am. When it's all said and done, no matter what you're facing, no matter what situation you're facing, no matter what problems you're facing, the only solution to any problem in your life is more of Jesus and frankly, a lot less of you. Like Jesus is the only one who can save your marriage. You think you can save your marriage? You're the one who screwed it up. So you're the one who screwed it up, and now you're the one who's going to fix it. It ain't happening. Like Jesus is a savior. He fixes things we can't. So it's Jesus that will save your marriage, not you. You need to die to yourself, get out of the way, and let Jesus do it. Like Jesus is the only one who can appropriately address the issues, whatever they are, that you're dealing with your children. 
more of you is more of the problem. Jesus is a Savior who can solve it. Your job is frustrating and it's unfulfilling. You know why? Because you're seeking in it to provide something only Jesus can. You've got some things backwards. Never forget, Jesus is the only one who can free you from sin, addiction. He's the only one that can heal a heart that's hurting. Well, what do I do? Oh, there goes the flesh, doesn't it? There he is, there she is, speaking out, craving to be involved, wanting a role. Clearly, there's got to be some role for me. No, there's not. The gospel message says unequivocally, there's nothing you can do. The problem is you, but the solution is him. So friend, the tangible remedy to any of your issues is simple. Get your eyes off the problem, admit you're not the solution, and instead focus on a relationship with Jesus. Your only hope, not just for eternity, but for today, is to be found in Christ. It is a relational association, which makes my exhortation rather straightforward this morning. Isn't it time to die to yourself, to your solutions, to your wisdom, to your godliness? Isn't it time to die to yourself and instead abide in Jesus? And allow him to work in you this change of our internal constitution so that he can then live through you. John the Baptist said something so profound, and he didn't even know he was saying it at the time. He told his disciples, as Jesus' popularity was growing, as his was subsequently diminishing it, diminishing because he was sending all of his followers to Jesus. He's like, hey, are you worried about it? He says, no, man. I must decrease so that he can increase. There is a limited amount of real estate in your heart. It is filled with you or him. The more of you that exists, the less room there is for him. But the more of him, the less room for you. And doesn't your life need more of Jesus? Mine does.